This morning I want to continue with this uh, theme that I've uh, brought up the last uh, five times, and this will be the sixth uh, talk, on the theme that I'm calling the anatomy of ignorance. And I have found it a fascinating theme. It takes the notion of ignorance, of really of a spiritual ignorance, a kind of deep unknowing that leaves us somewhat blind and acting in compulsive and driven ways leading to suffering and gives the understanding of ignorance as a key to transformation, that seeing where there's ignorance and addressing it as a key to how we learn, how we grow, how we get at the roots of what causes personal, relational, and collective suffering. And so it's been a fascinating theme for me. You know, it's a theme that we've seen is strong in many traditions. This sense that we have limited perception, or as the poet Blake said, that if the doors of perception were cleansed, we would see things as they are, but the doors of perception are not cleansed for most of us. And so we see through a dark uh, glass darkly, as it said. And we see that, I've talked about how that's rooted in Western traditions, uh, Asian traditions, that image of Plato and the cave that many of us know of the human condition as being locked in a cave, looking at shadows, not seeing things as they are, and that the human endeavor is to come out of that shadow land and see reality and then help others to do the same thing. Very similar to what we find in other traditions. And I, I um, have given quotations from Rumi, remember where he says, you know, who am I? What am I doing? I cannot say that I know. <laughs> right? That sense that of not really knowing or I found some more from, this is from uh, Buddhist tradition, this is from the Buddha. Uh, um, warped perceptions are what keep your mind on fire. Another one, delusion burns the bewildered, unaware of the noble Dhamma. And so it's, it's, a, it's quite a beautiful key. In, in a Buddhist tradition, there are two terms that are used, uh, avidya and moha. And avidya is the more, they're, they're actually fairly synonymous, but um, avidya is usually translated as ignorance, and moha is usually translated as delusion. And I think they just refer a little bit to different aspects of it, like the... Um, Ignorance is more kind of the general state of being. And delusion refers, I would say, a little bit more to the psychological nature, how we experience that, the subjective factor of ignorance. And it manifests as bewilderment, confusion, feeling,
sometimes like a, a robot or a feeling compulsively driven. You know, and of course this relates to Western concepts, contemporary Western concepts um, that come a lot from psychology of being driven by the unconscious. Right? These are all quite similar. The notion that ignorance is the core problem and uh, those who've come to the earlier talks know that I've juxtaposed this to the, uh, I would say, an alternative way of understanding the roots of human problems is seeing the roots as being in evil rather than in ignorance. And they're quite different approaches if you have these different models. If, if evil is the problem, then you want to stamp out evil and find out who's evil and get rid of them somehow. Right? And um, whereas ignorance, and again, it, it's, I think it's similar in different traditions, there's, a, I think, a generally more optimistic view of human nature, but it's also a long road, right? That, that there's an optimistic view that all humans, even those who act in really nasty ways, it's coming out of their own confusion and ignorance rather than out of some inherent badness. So in that sense, again, I think uh, a generally more uh, uh, benevolent view of human nature. Right? So again, um, they're quite different. One of the interesting uh, aspects of this, I remember, uh, can't, you know, I, I, I was uh, remembering something I heard from Stephen Batchelor, who, who writes a lot about Buddhist practice, and he said that the that uh, the emotional correlate of ignorance is fear and anxiety. You know, like we don't know, and we're nervous about it. Right? And that, that's quite interesting. Now that's his speculation. That's not in the Buddhist tradition. And there actually wasn't so much said about fear and anxiety in the, in the tradition. So in the, um, you know, in the past talks, I've spoken about three different aspects of ignorance. And I've, I've wanted to distinguish. And we've already explored the first two to some extent. And the first, the first aspect, the first two aspects more come from Western approaches. So the first is what we can call our personal ignorance, particularly that we find when we look through psychological lens. The second is socially conditioned ignorance that, you know, we all, and we all share in both of these. But Western traditions have helped really us identify these aspects in different ways. And the third kind is a kind we might call spiritual ignorance. So all of us have all three. So I, as, I, as I've said sometimes, this is both um, optimistic, you know, human nature is ultimately good, human life is about learning, optimistic view, we don't, you know, and, and then it's very sobering because, my gosh, there's a lot of ignorance around, right? And I, I have a lot of ignorance. And now you know that it can minimally be unpacked as psychological, social, and spiritual. Before, I, thought, I just thought I had one form of ignorance. <laughs> now I know I have three, at least three, maybe more if we, if we keep going. You know? And so, uh, uh, and, and then I thought, yes, but it's, it's, so it's, it's sobering. But then there, there are maps, and it's really wonderful and it can be inspiring and we can learn and, and that's really exciting and uplifting and yes but it's such a long way 
Oh, that's depressing. Oh, kind of go back and forth, but hopefully we'll, we'll end the talk on a positive note. So, okay, so uh, I talked about the uh, first kind, the personal ignorance. We've looked at that. We looked at how to transform them. And I want to also thread in, as I talk about these, the themes from last week with Tony, and then the last time I was here, where I focused also on the role of views, opinions, and beliefs in supporting ignorance. And we can see, as we look through these different kinds of ignorance, that having uh, particular views, having deeply entrenched beliefs, many of them unconscious, play a huge role in ignorance. We can see that you know, when we look to the personal dimension, and this is one of the ways we looked at ignorance, we can see that, that all of us have certain um, relatively unconscious or half-conscious core beliefs about ourselves, about the nature of things. Something I've seen a lot in working with people in transforming the judgmental mind is just how we have, may have deep beliefs that I am not okay or this part of my life is not okay that is more than just a conscious thought, that it is often inculcated at an early age. You know, or um, you know, I was talking just yesterday with several people who, had, who were expressing the fact that they were in their 70s and they were feeling self-judgmental about being old because they had some kind of beliefs that there's a problem with being old. And we were talking about the social conditioning around that. There's a lot of social reinforcement for that, right? And we can, we can see how we may feel ourselves in a kind of personal cloud and there may be a deep unconscious belief that we're not really in touch with. And that's often how um, psychological um, approaches and traditions have tried to unpack the unconscious in, in terms of these deep beliefs that are half conscious. And it's, it, it can be a very, I find in working with judgmental minds, a very effective way to work. And we can identify views, they start to come into the surface, you know. Uh, and it can be very, very helpful. It can be a view about oneself. It can be a view about one's um, uh, relationships, like uh, people have views, my needs will not be met, you know, often. And these may come from uh, childhood and so forth. And there also can be positive views as well, and, and supportive views. And then, you know, in terms of the social conditioning and that level of the unconscious again, we can see how we can have uh, tremendous ignorance related to views, I think, you know, and, we, and they're, they're socially conditioned, whether it be about, about age or about any number of areas, you know. Uh, I, I saw, since I last saw you, I saw the film Twelve Years a Slave. Anyone seen that? It's a, it's a wonderful, powerful film, but uh, it's, it's, it's an uplifting ordeal, <laughs> so to speak, that's my experience. And so, um, but that showed a whole society dominated by pretty fictitious views that totally um, structured several hundred years of history you know, throughout the world and, and tremendous suffering. And that comes from socially inculcated views, and we know, we know how that is, right? 
You know, and we could think in all sorts of ways. You know, they're all, this is across all sorts of dimensions. You know, race, gender, class, level of education, nationality. Uh, you know, I was thinking of the social images of beauty, right? Certain body images. People have their experiences deeply affected by what we internalize in terms of views about beauty. And I am not beautiful, and so forth. Or typically, it's that we can also go the other way, which is can also be a trap, you know. You know, I I uh, I, I do talk. I ha I can think of having talked with a number of people, a uh, number of women particularly, who were in their fifties and sixties, who were seen as very very beautiful in conventional ways, and at that age they, go, they were going through a kind of a crisis because they did not see themselves as beautiful anymore. You know, and, and is that familiar to some people? Right? And there were, there, were, there were ways that they were having to deal with what they had internalized, which at in some point had seemed to advantage them, and at later point did not. Right? So it's quite, this is, this is a lot of, this, these are the the image of ignorance is that there are, you know, they're, they're almost like fogs that we live in, unconscious forces that drive us. And we did suggest, or I, I did suggest, that all of this is workable. That there are ways, and this is, this is the, okay, this is the optimistic view, so, that we can actually work with, identify, and transform the personal ignorance and the social ignorance. We know less well how to transform the social ignorance, but it happens over time, you know, and we can see that. You know, we can see that happening in small ways. Maybe Nelson Mandela contributed to that in certain ways. That there was, uh, um, there were, it's complex, but there were people who appreciated, there were many uh, whites in South Africa who came to really see Nelson Mandela um, very favorably, and many of you probably heard some of those amazing stories of his life in the last week. I, you know, I, I could mention some of those, but they were, some of them were about uh, how, um, essentially, how love and forgiveness and reconciliation permitted the changing of hearts and the lifting of fo the, the, um, the fog, the lifting of ignorance. And so there are ways that this can happen. And then the Third, third area that I want is what I want to focus on today. And this is what we might call spiritual ignorance. And this is really the focus in the Buddhist tradition. When the Buddhist tradition and the teachings of the Buddha, when the Buddha says ignorance is the root problem, and how do we identify ignorance and transform it, um, this, is, this is the center of practice. This is the center of the message that we get. And this is the reason, ultimately, why we meditate, why we gather together. Because for the Buddha, you know, as with other traditions, the root of human difficulty and suffering is ignorance. It's that simple. And in fact, Many of you know, and I, we've uh, looked into this quite a bit these Wednesday mornings, that the evening, 
of the Buddha's awakening. He came, it is said, to new insights. And these issued in a teaching called Dependent Origination or Dependent Arising, which we've explored quite a bit. And anyone who wasn't here, we had a series, I think, of five or six talks on Dependent Origination, which are, which are on Dharma Seed. And in that series of insights on the night of his awakening, he came up with a fairly, probably the most uh, complex model of his teaching, which was a model of how suffering occurs based on ignorance. That was it. And he pointed to how we can practice to transform that ignorance. Now for him, there were different models about what we're ignorant of. And sometimes he talked about the model of the Four Noble Truths, which was probably the most, uh, most basic of the teachings. And the Four Noble Truths are that there is suffering, that there is a cause of suffering, that freedom is possible, and that there is a path to come to freedom. And, and often that was seen as when we really know that, we have wisdom and insight, and when we don't see that clearly, when we, when we are not attuned to suffering and the causes of suffering and freedom and the causes of freedom, there is ignorance. Another model that was very, very common, which in some ways is more comprehensive, is the one I want to look at today. And that is the model um, that is called the model of the three characteristics of phenomena. Do not be scared away by that name. Uh, it sounds a little, could sound a little bit arcane, but it's basically saying these are the three core aspects of experience that actually that we don't see clearly. And the analysis is that we don't see three things. The first is um, we don't see impermanence. And we tend to see the world as if things are solid and permanent, including me. And we don't see the change in things. And I'll unpack each of these and come back to each of these. The second is really an expression of the Four Noble Truths, is that we don't see suffering and the roots of suffering clearly, and we look for happiness in rapidly changing phenomena that can't bring a lasting happiness. We're confused about what brings happiness and we take that which in actuality, if we grab hold of it, will lead to suffering. We take that as a source of happiness. Again, I'll unpackage each of these. And the third aspect of experience that we don't see clearly is that we don't see clearly the um, lack of an independent self. We think that I am here and I am solid and I am set off against others and set off against the world and we don't see interdependence and we don't see the changing and um, fluid nature of everything, including human beings, including me. And that's probably the more probably the most difficult one to actually understand and explore. And again, 
we did a series on this <laughs> in more depth it is available to be looked at. I'll give a short, a short account of it here. So let me talk about each of those three and how we practice with them because what I've wanted to do is not just say here are the forms of ignorance by say, but to also say how do we transform ignorance. So this is right at the heart of our practice. How do we, how do we see where we don't understand impermanence, the nature of suffering, and the nature of self? How we don't understand those. Those are taken to be where we are systematically ignorant. And so we get a map of that territory and then we're also given practices and we've all been using them to cut through that ignorance. Okay? So first impermanence. We can really talk about this on both a gross level and a more subtle level. And both are important. That it's important to see that things are changing on a gross level. And intellectually, all of us, if we were given a multiple choice test, would get this one right. Are things, are phenomena impermanent? A. Permanent? B. None of the above. <laughs> C. Which, what do you say? What's your answer? Hey, okay, we got it. Okay, that, okay. Yeah. There, cut through ignorance. On to the next one. <laughs> right. Well, uh, we know it intellectually uh, in a certain context, but even on a gross level, we don't always appreciate the fact of impermanence. And we can tend to think that things will last forever, this arrangement will last forever, this relationship will last forever, this job will last forever, uh, this meditation practice will last forever, whatever it might be, you know, or uh, this um, country will last forever, or this arrangement, you know, I mean, again, to go back to Nelson Mandela, we could say that um, a visionary perceives, can perceive the impermanence of what many people t take to be something that will last just a really long time, right? A visionary can see beyond that. Who saw beyond the Soviet Union? Who saw beyond apartheid South Africa, right? Many people did not. And so we can look at impermanence even on a gross level and see where do I, where, where do I, am I overly caught in my views there? And in particular, uh, in the tradition, we're often asked to contemplate impermanence and death on this level. You know, again, it's very striking. I had this student who I saw on a Thursday in his 50s. On Sunday, he was dead. Right? It's very striking, right? In an accident, right? And it, it's, I think when we experience that, there's always a shock, right? And, and, and it can be, uh, can be something that we, that we uh, actually contemplate. And one practice, which I've sometimes given here, and I've done sometimes very, I found it quite helpful, might be for five or ten minutes, you know, maybe before one meditates, just to contemplate impermanence 
and change, you know, and, and death and birth and so forth. And just to reflect on that on a more gross level. Now it's on the subtle level that things are quite interesting. The su more subtle level of contemplating impermanence. And this is where meditation does come in because <coughs> what one of the forces which makes it hard to see impermanence is language and concepts. And this is where we can connect with that discussion of views. Um, what we learn in meditation is something about how we can cut through being always conceptually mediated. That's one way to say it. That we can actually go beyond experiencing everything through the lens of language. And this is not easy and this is why we need actually to meditate. We need a certain level of concentration because the mind typically, in most of our minds, most of the day, we totally operate um, much of the day in the field of language, in the field of concepts, right? Go out and say, there's my car, right? Where are my keys? Let's go. Oh, there's another car. Oh, there's a stop sign, right? And it's totally uh, conceptually mediated. And we tend to take concepts for reality. This would be a very, very succinct commentary on one of the sources of ignorance. When we meditate we, and we develop enough concentration, we develop the ability to experience uh, pre-linguistically. And I think, I imagine most of us have experienced that, or we can we can sometimes be with nature, be with what we call a sunset, and can we let go of the concepts and just be with color and form, and maybe not even call it that, and let the concepts go. I, I remember when I was first meditating, I would be with a sunset, and I would say, oh, it's such a beautiful sunset, I should get my camera. Or, and that's, that's conceptually mediated. Part of what we learn in meditation is to let go of the concepts and experience more directly without concepts. And we come to see how much of our lives is conceptually mediated. And this is particularly important for impermanence because when we're continually looking at objects, and focusing on objects, which of course we need to do in much of our practical lives. And language is certainly helpful, but we tend to use a means and take it as the nature of reality. That's another way of saying it. The philosopher Wittgenstein said, we are bewitched by language. We get taken into the linguistic realm and we think that this is the way things are. This is from another philosopher, Nietzsche, some of you know. A nerve stimulus first transposed into an image, first metaphor, 
the image in turn imitated by a sound, second metaphor. We believe we know something of the things themselves when we speak of trees, colors, snows, and flowers, but we possess only metaphors of things do not, that do not in the slightest correspond to the original and central entities. We use language to help ourselves pragmatically, but we forget that we've used a tool. And this, again, is one of the reasons why we don't see impermanence. And with, the, with um, Western languages, we use nouns a lot, and we think that they're objects, right? Other languages see more process. They don't have nouns and objects, which is real, right? What is real? If you had words that don't refer to this thing, that thing, and so forth, what would you, uh, you'd have a very different way of seeing things, right? So we get, we get uh, confused by words, and meditation lets us go beneath the level of language, where we can actually tune into impermanence and get, uh, in some way, away from that bewitching quality of language. And the physicists tell us also that objects named by words and concepts are constructions that they don't correspond to the way things are. This is from a physicist, uh, Bernard, Bernard uh, Despagnat. The doctrine that the world is made up of objects whose existence is independent of human consciousness turns out to be in conflict with quantum mechanics and with facts established by experiment. That could be, if we listen to that again, that could be unsettling. <laughs> The doctrine that the world is made up of objects whose existence is independent of human consciousness turns out to be in conflict with quantum mechanics and with facts established by experiment. So language tends to, we tend to see the world through the lens of language. We tend to think that the objects are real. And vision plays a very large role in this. That when we go through the other senses, reality is different. You know, as again, I was thinking of my father, who was blind the last 27 years of his life. And he worked a lot with sound. And I sometimes tried to experience, as he was experiencing, the world as experienced primarily through the sense of sound doesn't objectify in the same way that we do with vision. You know? And this has been something I think you know has been something that's really been interesting and explored especially by painters. And again, we've talked about this from time to time, but many of the 19th century European painters like Cezanne and so forth, uh, Matisse, were extremely interested in painting beneath the level of concepts. That's why they had splotches. You know, almost like sense data pre-conceptual. And they were exploring exactly the same questions that we're exploring right now through painting and trying to say, can we work with vision in a way which doesn't go through the lens of language in the same way? And again, this is crucial for impermanence because we want to not just think thing now, thing number two, thing number three, but we actually want to see the flow and not be so much caught in the conceptual realm. 
That's a more subtle level. We can see impermanence at a grosser level as well. So what do we, how do we practice with this? Maybe much as we did with the meditation, where we, and it often can be helpful just for two or three minutes, can I tune into the flow of things and really notice? Bam, 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 bam. A lot of what we do with our practice, and this is really, this is a way of practicing that leads to insight not just about impermanence but about suffering and about self. We try to stay with experience at the level of flow and we see where we get stuck or fixed on some aspect of the flow. If I had to give one instruction for practice, that would be it. And it goes a very, very long way. And so we're interested when we meditate, a lot of what we're interested in when we meditate is can I just be with experience and watch where I get hung up? <coughs> and then see it and release it and go back to experience. And that's a lot of what meditation's like. And you know, one of the interesting things about doing this is that when we work with something like seeing into the three characteristics, it can really energize our practice. Did you find it interesting to really, in a focused way, look at impermanence? Because we've talked a lot about it. Sometimes our meditation just gets comfortable. <coughs> comfortable and a little dull and pleasant. Has anyone experienced that? You know, we just sit, it's kind of pleasant. They talk about this as insight meditation. I'm not sure where there's insight, but it is kind of pleasant, calming, peaceful and dull. Has anyone experienced that? No? And working with this inquiry, one of my Tibetan teachers, they said they have a phrase in Tibetan tradition, they call it stupid meditation. <laughs> Don't take it personally. <laughs> um, and so when we actually focus in this way on impermanence and really see, okay, where, you know, and give ourselves the instruction, where am I stuck a little bit? Where do I get into a concept, a thought, or whatever? It can really energize our practice. Okay. So with impermanence, we would just, maybe for five minutes, could be for a whole sitting, but especially it's very useful for a very short time, stay with the flow and really just try to track how things are changing and see where we get, see where the mind gets a little bit stuck and doesn't stay with the flow. The second area, suffering. And, and really being free of suffering. But again, it's actually quite similar to what I just said. What we do with our practice is we especially tune in to where we actually uh, are reactive, where we are grabbing hold of experience or pushing it away. We typically call suffering where we push something away and say, I don't want this, this is unpleasant, and so forth. But if you remember the teaching that we often give, remember the teaching of the two arrows? The, t the, the suffering is in the reactivity. And that in Buddhist tradition, suffering is not understood as the presence of the unpleasant so much, but as the presence of the unpleasant where we don't want it, and where we're pushing it away, where there's resistance. Another term that could be translated for suffering is resistance to experience. And it can be actually resistance where we're pushing away something, I don't like that, it's unpleasant, we're actually where we're grabbing hold of something and thinking, oh, this is great, this will make my day. And that is also a more subtle kind of suffering. 
And this is actually the, the teaching is that we tend to grab hold as if this would help us and push away as if this would help us. And we don't see that the deeper sense of happiness doesn't lie in reactivity, but it is really in the peaceful being with what arises and the wise, skillful response. In other words, it's not in some kind of compulsive, unconscious wanting or not wanting. And that's a core teaching. That's really the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. But that is really the teaching here, is that we don't see that. We think that we will particularly find happiness in all sorts of impermanent, unreliable things, that we will find the deepest happiness we want in this job, this relationship, this um, home arrangement. And of course those can give certain kinds of happiness, but the Buddha is really talking about, and other traditions are really talking about going deep, about going deeply and seeing where does the deepest happiness lie? What's the root of the deepest happiness? And the teaching here is that it's actually in seeing that grabbing hold and pushing away as a compulsive behavior leads to suffering, ultimately, and doesn't lead to happiness. It can lead, you know, we can grab hold of something, we can say, I have to have a brownie. At first I was going to say ice cream cone, but I wanted to be more weather relevant. <laughs> so, I have to have a brownie, right? Or substitute anything that we have to have, right? I have to have this, I have to have that. And there's something in the mind which says, you know, sometimes in meditative circles we call it the if-only syndrome. If only this would be the case, then I would be happy. If only I had this job, this relationship, this meal, this whatever, this brownie, then I would be happy. And the second area where we inquire is to really look into that and see whether that really holds. And it's to actually study when we are suffering when we are reactive and when there's some discomfort, where we are, not so much where there's something unpleasant, but where there's that resistance to the flow, that reactivity. And our practice is to keep studying that. You know, a lot of our practice, like I think our practice has these two rhythms. On the one hand, we look to where we get stuck and we study that over and over and over again. And over time, we see into where we, we see into these patterns and we don't get stuck so much. Right? And the other half of our practice is to cultivate uh, going into beautiful states like loving kindness or compassion or mindfulness and just hanging out there and developing more of these awakened qualities which are also um, kind of balance us so we're not just going into the hard stuff all the time. You know, that we actually, and when we meditate, we sometimes hang out with being present and feeling a kind of balance 
and even feeling bliss in the body, feeling calm, feeling equanimity. The Buddha identified awakened states, equanimity, concentration, stillness, energy, joy, mindfulness, curiosity. And we hang out with those qualities. So I, I want to bring that in because the focus on the three characteristics is especially about seeing where we get stuck. <laughs> okay? But in actuality, our practice is at least half hanging out with beautiful states and cultivating them. Okay? And, th and that balance really is actually uh, points to a very important cycles of learning. We need to do both. If, we're just, if we've just been looking at hard stuff, we give freedom for the next six months just to be with beautiful states. Christmas present, Hanukkah present, whatever, solstice present. Um, okay, so the practice would be, let me tune in to where I get a little stuck, where there's a moment of suffering. This was my first meditation instruction when I studied with Joseph Goldstein. He said, I want you to really be on the lookout for any moment of suffering and study it. He said, particularly look into it and see where there's some grasping, where I have some fixed sense, oh, it's got to be this way, or, you know, I shouldn't be feeling uh, unpleasant sensations. Go away. Okay, so that's the second area. And again, the teaching is we don't see impermanence to a large extent because of concepts, and we don't see the true nature of suffering and reactivity, and we tend to think that we can find happiness in grabbing hold of things. Okay? Then the third area is this more mysterious area. This is the area of um, the fact that we somehow don't see ourselves accurately. We tend to see ourselves as more fixed than we actually are. So it's actually related to the first two. we have a kind of construct of self, often mediated by language, and we don't see how we are much more of a fluid process. And in meditation, we often have that experience where we go beneath the level of concepts, and we may have an experience in which we don't have a, a very thick sense of self. And when we've looked at that here in this group, I've often emphasized uh, very ordinary experiences where we don't have a strong sense of self, where we might be with friends, where we don't have self-consciousness, and we are just flowing. We are just flowing, where we might be in art or music, where in the creative process we are just with the flow of experience and there's nothing getting in the way. Or I like to quote my mom here, who, who, as a musician, she says, when you're performing, you need to not have a sense of self. It gets in the way. You need, let, you need to let yourself get taken over by the music. Right? So those are more, more ordinary experiences, which I think are like ordinary accessible sense of being beyond the ordinary construct of self, and which said, okay, here I am. There's the world. There are you. Let's negotiate. Right, and so forth. So we have, the, we have these experiences, and in meditation we train to be able to go beneath the level of concepts to where we are really just with a kind of primordial flow of experience. And this is taken to be actually 
more deeply seeing what is real. That the constructs of objects, of self, of other, of the U.S. Congress, of Redwood Tree, of Nelson Mandela, these are all, in a sense, constructs. And when we want to look deeply at the nature of things in order to live wisely, we need to go beneath the level of concepts and even beneath the level of self and look more deeply. And the interesting thing about those experiences of music or art, of being with others where we don't have a sense of self, most people would say, these are the most profound experiences of my life. You know, being with nature without a sense of self where I'm just connected. Right? And these are the ordinary experiences and we cultivate similar experiences in meditation. And again, I think we do it in two ways. One of them is that we try to see where there's a thick sense of self. Very similar to what we did in the first two. We see, where does my self become thick? Where do I have a lot of thinking? Or a really strong resistance? I, I don't like this. Where, in some ways, do we interfere with the flow with a sense of self? I call it a thick, a thick, not, not sick. Thick, a thick sense of self. And where do we find that? And the other way, is to start cultivating more experiences of flow, which I think we all do in certain ways. Probably, again, maybe with art or music or people we're very close to or being with the natural world, we often go into that kind of flow experience. And so I think we do, with, with all of these, we both see where we are not seeing impermanence, where we are not seeing suffering, where we are not seeing the thick self, we see when, that, when those come up, and we notice it, and we release it. And then on the other hand, we cultivate the sense of the flow. We see impermanence more. We study suffering, and we learn how to just take the unpleasant and notice this strong compulsion, maybe, to resist in the body. And then we relax, and, oh, let me just be with the unpleasant in my body for a little while as a flow. I noticed the, the tendencies. So this is deep work, right? This is deep work that we're doing. And it's complementary to the first two forms of, of working through ignorance. And this is what we're doing with our practice, and it's what we do in, in daily life. And it is deep practice, and it's not easy, and we need guidance and friends and support. But we can do it in very ordinary ways. I think it's really just tuning more into impermanence, really taking the looking for where I get stuck and suffer as a starting point for practice, and then also seeing where the self gets very thick. And these are all three quite connected, as, you, as you're, you're seeing. So let me end with uh, a few quotations. This is from the second century, from the philosopher uh, Nargajuna, who sometimes in uh, some Buddhist traditions is taken as the second Buddha. This is what he said. This is in relationship to sense of self. What is inside is me. What is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops. Repetition ceases. Freedom dawns. I'll read that again. What is inside, he's referring to the first, the first two lines are about really um, ignorant thoughts. 
what is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Maybe the last quotation, this is from a um, 20th century Tibetan teacher named Jogo Kensei Rinpoche, who's one of my heroes. Actually, just about a week ago, I had two dreams of him. Even though he died like 22 years ago, I had these two dreams, and he was, spoke amazingly good English. <laughs> very, very friendly, Great, pretty good English. Okay, this is what he said. And listen for how there's the teaching of seeing through self, seeing through impermanence, and then the link with suffering in this quotation. I'll end with this. The idea of an enduring self is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and free others too. This I is just a passing thought, a feeling. A thought does not intrinsically possess any solidity, form, shape, or color. Once you realize that it is passing and has no inherent existence, your belief in it will easily disappear. Mm. Let's sit for a moment. We have time for a few reflections or comments or questions. I know it was a lot, wasn't it? <laughs> the last talk I heard on, that I heard on this, something related to this topic, not on ignorance so much, but on impermanent suffering and self, uh, it was an hour-long talk, which is longer than I just talked, and I personally only got through the first two. Um, please, yeah. Um, when I think about this, some stuff comes up. This isn't even really a question nor a comment. <laughs> it's just something that's kind of nagging at me, I guess. In the psychological sense, a person needs to have a good coalesced sense of self yeah. in order to function yeah. well in the world, yeah. and those of us who don't yeah. have a lot of trouble. Yeah. And at the same time, I get, I think I do, kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, the experiential sense of, but that's not really real. Right. So how, to, how do we bring together so. the <laughs> sense that a self may be necessary to a sense of self may be necessary to function in the world, along with your lived experience, that there can be a sense of experiencing flow without a sense of self. How do we put these together? One way that they're put together is developmentally. Meaning, <laughs> meaning that um, one might not teach the three characteristics 
before someone had a functional sense of self. That might not be skillful. And so meditation traditionally is not taught to young children. It's taught after people get to a certain age. You know, one psychologist, uh, Jack Engler, looked into this phenomenon. He said, you have to have a self before you don't have a self. <laughs> and so some of it's developmental. And, and you're right that in, and unless people have what they think is a firm sense of self, and it can, can look different, you know, in different, in different cultures and so forth, uh, they may not be very functional. And so some of it's developmental, like once one has that, if one doesn't have that achievement, then one needs to focus there. And it's not wise. And this comes up for meditation teachers, because we have people sometimes who developmentally need to get a job, be in their bodies, be grounded, and they want to talk about emptiness, right? And they want to talk about going beyond self, and it's clear that there's still some more work to do with self. Right? And so there's actually been a fair amount of attention in literature and to this issue. It's, it's really and it's fascinating. So one sense is that, is that you sort of resolve it some developmentally, and then when people have a certain level of maturity, then they can look at these other teachings which talk about really wanting to see reality clearly, as opposed to just function in the world. Right? Functioning in the world with a sense of self doesn't mean you necessarily see things really, really clearly in a deep way, right? It just means you function well. And so it's almost like saying, are there prerequisites before you start really looking for wisdom? And I think there are. That's like what you're saying. So could you infer then that if someone was trying to do, as you said, look into the emptiness of self before they had a self, that it would be detrimental to them? Yeah, it often could be detrimental. Yeah, in other words, they wouldn't be doing what developmentally is important for them to do, right? And again, I think as teachers, we, try, we, we actually are somewhat attuned to that because it does come up. You know. no, one, no one here. It's <laughs> okay. well, a great question. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Other? Yeah, please. Yeah. To study, um, like in <clears throat> beginning in a moment of suffering. Yeah. Um, is it? Uh, does one? Can one get? I get stuck with language. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think that I get beyond language, and, and maybe one doesn't. Yeah. And I. Um, it's. Uh, you know, I think. Uh, say, okay, I'm. I'm feeling betrayed, or I'm feeling oh, yeah. violated, yeah. or. <clears throat> I'm running victim or martyr. Okay. So. Great, great question also. I, I, I think I really get it, but if you want to, I, I interrupted you a little bit. Yeah. If, you, if you get it, I'll stop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, again, it's, it's, it's also really helping us to make a distinction, which I did not make, which is, which is quite helpful, which is that we can work with all three of these at, at both at more grosser levels and at more subtle levels. And by gross, we can think of, you know, using concepts in language, in the ordinary way we experience things. And then we can also work with things more subtly in meditation in ways that we don't ordinarily experience, usually, in the flow of everyday life. So that would mean that if I notice myself suffering and I'm thinking I'm betrayed, we would work with that. And some of it might be to, you know, to work at a conceptual level. 
But what, what we, and, and so it, it's not saying that all the work, you know, when we want to look at suffering, that we have to do so in a non-conceptual way. And, and so thank you for, I didn't, I might have, I can see how that might have been an understanding. We actually work with all of this in both conceptual ways and non-conceptual ways. And they're both helpful. And so in a conceptual way, I might say, you know, I might actually ask myself, you know, I'm, f I'm really suffering because of what just happened in this relationship. What's going on? And we might reflect on it and think, I'm not sure, you know, what is it? Oh, I think I feel betrayed, right? And, okay, and how do I feel, you know, how do I, f what's that feeling like? What's it like in my body? You know, what are the thoughts connected with it? What are my stories? Well, that's all conceptually mediated, and that is extremely helpful. Right? can be extremely helpful to do. And, uh, and I, can, I could start to see I'm suffering because I have this story of this is the way it had to happen, right? In this relationship, and it didn't happen that way. And I'm really suffering that, and maybe I can be more flexible. Or maybe, you know, the person acted really morally inappropriate, didn't keep an agreement, and, we, and as one of my Tibetan teachers says, we need to talk. <laughs> we need to talk. Yeah, it's very, very cute. You know, people who live, this teacher is Sokni Rinpoche, lives mostly in Nepal, but he's really picked up Californiaisms. You know, so, and he likes to bring them up at opportune moments. And so, um, yeah, so we might, we might, something happened, I'm suffering, and I can take responsibility for my suffering, but maybe there's something to talk about interpersonally. That's going to be completely mediated conceptually, and should be, right? No, I mean, maybe not completely, but to a large extent. And then there are other times where I can, maybe with some kind of suffering, I can get really, really quiet, and I can watch my mind be quiet, and then suddenly get into, you know, I can be really with the flow, oh, there's my breath, and then suddenly, like Sylvia does that, right? You know, I, I make, and that's, and that starts to maybe go into language, right? But I can notice that, and that's a little more non-conceptual. I just notice that, and I can notice how that's, that's at a more subtle level of mind. And so we do both, really. And often, for the kind of experiences you were talking about, it's primarily conceptual, and that's fine. And, there's, and, and a lot of work can be done at that level. So thank you for really bringing that out, because given the limits of time, I did not make all the distinctions that would have been helpful. <laughs> but it comes out in discussion, so. Um, great, so there's a lot more. Maybe, maybe I, I, I have some choices. I don't come back for a while, like, like until next year. And one option we have would be to go into more depth with these, you know, and have a chance to practice them. How many, how many would like to maybe take a little more time with these? Okay. How many would definitely not want to take more time? Okay. okay. Ready for something. Ready for some impermanence in terms of theme. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, because it, it was brief and we didn't, there was a lot of these subtleties which didn't have time to come out. So maybe what I can do next time is take, take us through the, the three of them. Maybe just do at most with one at a time and give a lot, of, a lot more time for discussion, which, which I like, which a lot comes out. Try to clarify how we practice with it, both at a more ordinary level and then on a more subtle level, right? 
Okay, and that, that's great. So that really follows from that. So that's not, uh, unless I have to sub for Sylvia, that's not going to be for another seven weeks. Okay, but impermanence will still keep happening. <laughs> and my invitation, if you want to practice with this, with these, practicing with impermanence, you can do reflections for five or ten minutes about impermanence, death, and so forth, which gets into one aspect of it. If you want to do it in a meditative uh, way, very helpful just to do it like for three minutes and just say, I'm going to tune into impermanence for these three minutes. More than that, we may not have the concentration. Just do it for three minutes for working with um, suffering. And I would just suggest just doing maybe one of these that I'm mentioning. To work with suffering, you can do a practice like what I did initially in my early in my practice, guided by Joseph Goldstein, to say, just to really have my radar up for when I get contracted and suffer, right? when there's resistance. Have your radar up for that. Really notice it, and then just work with it skillfully. Study it, notice it, see what the views are, what's it feel like, what's the skillful response, much as we were just, just speaking. That's, a, that's another way to practice. And study that as it appears in experience. And then the third way, the third aspect would be to really track uh, when a strong sense of self appears. When do I feel self-conscious or when do I feel, you know, I have to have my way. Does anyone ever do that? No. no. Okay. We're beyond that. Okay. Um, and just notice that. And again, think, and then for, if you choose one of those three, also think that the second aspect, we both look for where we get stuck or fixed, but we also see where do I feel more with the flow? Where do I feel more with the flow of impermanence? Where am I more with the flow of experience? Where, where is there more of a sense of flow and not much sense of self? So we can also cultivate that. Okay. So, thank you kindly for your attention. May this be of benefit to ourselves. May we benefit others. May there generally be benefit rather than problems issuing from our time together. <laughs>